0: Happy New Year. I'm Ryan McDermott. To give our staff a break, we're doing a rerun featuring one of 2022's most popular episodes, Grant Marzoff's interview with Andrew Willard-Jones. Speaking of staff, I want to call your attention to the really excellent show notes that our content editor, Kate Meyer, has been producing. A lot of thought goes into those notes. A lot of work goes into editing the full transcripts. And we always make sure that the links add value to the episode. You're not going to find in those links anything that you could easily Google yourself. What you will find is often surprising, thought-provoking, and off the beaten track. You can't get that from an AI. and Believe me, I've recently tried. So a new year is beginning, and we're scheduling new guests. We'd love to hear from you. Whom should we have on the show? send us your suggestions. You can send them to me, Ryan McDermott, mcdermott at beatriceinstitute.org. And don't forget to rate and review if you haven't already. Now on with the show.
1: We are wandering between two worlds. Modernity as we knew it is passing away, and the next world is yet to be born. Like Dante, we are in a dark wood, struggling to know how to think and how to live. Virgil guided Dante with the light of natural reason. Then Beatrice illuminated the path to paradise with Christian revelation. Welcome to the Beatrice Institute podcast, where Christian faith and reason illuminate the best of academic thinking and research. How should we think and live in this time between worlds? At Beatrice Institute, we take our bearings from the good, the true, and the beautiful. I'm Grant Marksoff. I direct Beatrice Institute's Personalism and Public Policy Initiative. How should we organize our common life to promote the flourishing of the person made in the image of God? My guest today is Dr. Andrew Willard-Jones. Andrew is an assistant professor and the director of Catholic studies at Franciscan University in Steubenville. He is trained as a historian and has written six books on church history and theology. His most recent book, called The Two Cities, is a survey of the history of church politics from the creation of the world through Vatican II. He's also the editor of New Polity, a journal of post-liberal thought. So I'm really excited to talk with Andrew today on a range of topics, including the limitations of liberalism, King Louis IX, and post-liberalism. So Andrew, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure.
1: Yeah. So just to start off, we all know that you're a vocal critic of liberalism, but the word liberalism does a lot of work these days and is used in different ways by different people. So I just want to orient us to what we mean when we talk about liberalism. So I'll start off with a quote that I'd, I'd like your reaction to. So this is from Liberalism, It's Discontents by Francis Fukuyama and he defines liberalism in this way. So by liberalism, I refer to the doctrine that argued for the limitations of the power of governments through law and ultimately constitutions, creating institutions protecting the rights of individuals living under their jurisdiction. So my first question, is this a sufficient definition of liberalism in your mind? Is this the project that
2: you're after? Great question, hard question. Actually, this is one of those things, isn't it, where you spend so much time, I spend so much time arguing about liberalism, talking about liberalism, studying liberalism. And then someone says, like, I'll have an undergrad that goes, hey, what is liberalism? And I'm like, uh... <laughs> and, and, and the reason why that cause can cause a problem is because is because in a lot of ways, what we're talking about is a tradition, right? And especially a tradition that is is historical, right? Like liberalism was something that has a history. It starts, it moves, there are nations that are liberal. And so we get in a similar sort of problem if we talk about liberalism that we do, if we talk about socialism or something, where critiques of socialism, there's, Always a socialist who says, Well, that wasn't really socialism, right? So, you, and the same sort of thing happens with liberalism. Now, as far as that quote is concerned, yeah, I think that that is a fine definition that a liberal would give. <laughs> okay, so, so liberalism, yeah, you know, what did liberals say about themselves? Something like that. Now, the problems with it are philosophical. So what is implicit or maybe even just directly explicit in that definition is a dichotomy between individual freedom and sort of state hegemony, right? That more state hegemony means less individual freedom, more individual freedom means less state hegemony. That these are inversely related to each other. And so the historical narrative that is being snuck in, in that definition, is that before liberalism, we had more hegemony and less freedom, and then liberalism comes along, increases freedom, reduces hegemony, right? That seems to be the sort of narrative that's in there. And that's just not true. (laughs) Okay, so that's, that's just not what happened historically, nor... And philosophically, it's mistaken as well, that actually, I think, not only can we demonstrate it historically, but we can demonstrate philosophically that an increase in individual liberty in the sort of way that liberals mean it which is something like the ability to what the ability to satisfy your own will without constraint or something that the maximization of that entails from the very beginning the construction and extension of the hegemonic state all right so freedom and state are not actually at odds with each other I mean individual freedom liberty um, as understood by liberals but are always bound up together Right.
1: <laughs> yeah. And, and I think the other thing that the definition by Fukuyama betrays is this belief that liberalism is a political project and it's strictly political. And this is Rawls' argument. Whereas I think one interesting thing that Patanin did was he showed. That liberalism is a total project that involves both an anthropology and a social theory, not just a political theory
2: of the state. Right. And it has to be. And that's part of the critique, is that like that's the reason why I said that's a good definition that a liberal would give, is because a liberal doesn't, doesn't view um, say things like a liberal. Liberalism, most liberalism, most generally speaking, doesn't understand humanity as that sort of an integral whole. So liberals seem to not have a problem with sort of an unexamined compartmentalization of human beings, right? And sorting into categories that become these sort of essential categories that they then then talk about as if they're assembling them into some sort of political construction, right? And what, so the critique of liberalism is not, you know, critique within liberalism becomes policy arguments, but the critique of liberalism itself is the critique of that philosophical beginning point, including the anthropology, of course, the most important part.
1: And this is actually a question for farther along, but I'll ask it now, is a major bug of modern liberalism is the reliance on these, a number of false dichotomies or false binaries particularly in regards to the human person. So how might these false dichotomies and binaries drive some of the distortions in our modern political life?
2: Well, yeah, I mean, the most obvious one is the one I, I already mentioned, which is which is this dichotomy between the individual and the state. I think in order to get at this, we have to start from the very beginning with this sort of anthropology. I think one of the characteristics of liberalism is, which I think without it you can't really be a liberal, is uh, anthropological individualism. All right, and this begins. I mean, we can see this. It doesn't matter. Pick your liberal theorist, right? But John Locke is the is the go-to guy. Right? <laughs> okay, so let's go to him. But the idea that the state of nature, which is a sort of thought experiment of sort of bare human life right? What does it look like? And that state of nature is a state of autonomous, self-interested, rational actors that are autonomous, self-interested, rational actors before they encounter each other, right? And so then they encounter each other and then we get, start getting the, the political project and the social project. But that that beginning point is of this anthropological individualism. Once you have, once you begin there, so then... You know, what the liberals will say is, OK, so these individuals are seeking their ends, whatever they happen to be, and they encounter each other and they, and two things happen. One is that they are threatened by each other. OK, that's one thing. But then the other uh, sort of a negative side. And then on the positive side is they realize that through cooperation, they, could, they can um, achieve their ends more efficaciously. Okay, so there's sort of a negative and a positive side to that. And so then they enter into cooperation. And ultimately, the state emerges and things like that. And what they and their cooperation that they enter into is the construction of what we might call public goods, think of like armies, roads, healthcare systems, whatever, right? Public goods or public sort of structures or infrastructure that makes their desired fulfillment smoother and easier. So they can move within this social infrastructure with less friction. Okay, so but what's happening there you can see is that is that the social is not an aspect of human nature, right? The social is a technology. Right? The political is a technology, something that's useful to various degrees. So then they get into arguments about what's useful. Is this useful? Is, is, you know, is universal healthcare useful? Is universal education useful? Is what's useful and what's not useful? And that becomes the content of liberal politics. Okay. So, but the thing is, is that that dichotomy between the individual and the state then, the state emerges in the theory as compromise right? The social emerges as a compromise. So, And then once that compromise is created, that hegemonic compromise, so you've surrendered some of your primordial liberty to this entity that is now going to provide these public goods, it makes possible then the the interaction of human, of individuals in a contractual basis. So now any human interaction is a compromise, right? Not just that primordial one that establishes the state, but all human actions within this theory are, are compromises because all human interaction are ultimately exchanges, right? contractual of some sort. And so you have within that then what they would think of as individual, the sort of private sphere of individual liberty is a liberty of contractual interactions that occur underneath this hegemonic structure right? that ensures that those contracts are followed through on.
1: One part of your writing that I find most interesting is that the case for liberalism is often made by pointing to our pre-liberal past as one of scarcity and violence. So we need liberal democracy and capitalism to help us rise out of hunger and bloodshed. However, this narrative is being actively complicated by you and by others. You know, one prime example outside of Christianity is uh, Grayburn Wengrow's Wengro's new book, The Dawn of Everything. I don't know if you've read that yet, but they, they essentially are showing that many indigenous cultures are actually marked by abundance and peace. And that's that's what it's marked by not by violence and scarcity so in your understanding why is this assumption of primordial violence and scarcity wrong because sometimes in modernity it feels you know it feels violent and scarce
2: It becomes, the reason why we experience it that way is because it becomes more true, the more liberal we become. (laughs) Okay. So, so liberalism is premised on an idea of the scarcity of resources. So that whole sort of initial scenario I just gave, the only reason why people enter into cooperation is a form of compromise, right? So there is a scarcity of resources, whether those resources be security or food or whatever. And we enter into relations as a compromise in the pursuit of these limited goods, but that's a false anthropology. So from my perspective, And I think from the deep tradition (laughs) that um, human beings are not anthropologically individual, but are social in our nature, right? So what that, that changes everything, right? And it's very hard for liberals and people raised in liberal societies to wrap our heads around what it means to be social in our nature, right? Because what we mean is there is no, if you're going to imagine humanity, you imagine them as embedded in social structures from the beginning, right? So so our satisfaction of our goods, of those ends which satisfy us are that make us happy, basically, in the sort of simplest sense, are goods that are only had socially. Okay, so what that means is that our encounter with each other is not primordially one of competition or cooperation towards the satisfaction of individual goods. But our original encounter with each other is a subsisting within the social good, right, which is the society which is living together. And so that sort of notion of the individual somehow arrayed against the world, right? Like somehow arrayed against the world, facing all of these problems, social material problems is undermined in the social conception of who human beings are, right? So we don't, we need not experience. I mean, when you look at universal scarcity, that theory, which really underwrites modern economics and things like that, that it's premised upon the idea that every individual, all else being equal wants more of everything all the time, (laughs) right? And, and that's not true of something say of happiness, Love, contentment, right? Like these things are actually things that are possible, and those are things that are. Another word for those is the feeling of abundance, of completeness, right? And so those ideas, if you begin there, then scarcity becomes a, a tear in the social fabric, or, uh, someplace where something has, has gone wrong, a new problem has emerged. In the Christian tradition, we'd say sin has occurred, <laughs> right? There's been some sort of a disordering and those disorders are, are always present. And so there's always scarcity, but it's, it's the exception rather than the norm.
1: To what extent then does liberalism rely on vice to perpetuate itself? I mean, maybe the vice of greed is just a a simple example.
2: Yeah. So the easiest form of liberalism to talk about is the form that's developed by people like Hayek or Mises or like the Austrian economists, because they're so consistent. They're so ruthlessly logical and consistent. So if we look at that sort of a system, then the presupposition is that human beings are self-interested, right? And so that every interaction that a human being has, in fact, Ludwig von Mises goes so far as to say that every action of a human being is an exchange of an attempt of bettering his own position vis-a-vis some other position, right? Like he's attempting to better his position. Okay. So self-interested is is the primordial, the fundamental condition. Now that is a vice. <laughs> okay. So, so for, from a Christian perspective, the natural condition of man and the virtuous condition of man is actually to be oriented towards the other for the good of the other. Right. So that justice is the beginnings of that. Charity is the fulfillment of that. But to be ordered towards the other so that your primary orientation towards the other is one of gift rather than one of maximizing returns. So what I'm getting at here though is that as liberalism advances, okay, so liberalism has this imperialism built into it because what, what liberalism, this is a complicated idea, so bear with me. As liberalism begins and then seeks to dominate a society. What that looks like is the replacement of social structures that I would call structures of solidarity, which are structures that are based upon this idea of the giving to the other, and replacing those structures with structures of competition and exchange. Okay, now, you can't just replace structures institutionally, because that's not the way human beings are, right? From all the way, it doesn't matter, you go all the way back to Plato or Aristotle, we know that, that the the habitual virtue and vice constitution of the of the subject, of the citizen, is tied directly to the form of the regime. These things are bound up together. And so, the in order for liberalism to function, in order for it to work, the effect must be to convert the people to that self-interested and rational actor. And so, and I think we can see this, right? That the more we occupy liberal structures, social and economic structures, the more we behave as self-interested and self-interested actors. And that habituates in us those habits, which are vices, right? So yeah, the advance of vice, and this is something Patrick Janine talks about, and he's very good on this, is it ultimately ends up in undermining liberalism, right? Liberalism can't, can't survive itself. Because, and this, and this is very obvious, right? Because, because in whose self-interest is it to maintain the disinterested rule of law, the disinterested enforcement of contracts, the disinterested justice system, right? In whose self-interest is it to maintain that? And so it has to be the liberalism in order for it to function, in order for its sort of ideal form to function, there has to at least be some substrate or some non-liberal values, right? Like, like justice, fair play, decency, honesty, and exchange, uh, you know, pursuit of peace. These sorts of things have to be there. Otherwise, it just descends into a sort of oligarchic tyranny.
1: One really interesting piece of the Grayburn Wingrove book, and I'd really commend it to you. One thing that really struck me is when Jesuit priests interacted with indigenous cultures, they were very chastened by the fact that they saw basically an Acts II community in North America and realized that Native Americans were very offended by the fact that in back in France, they were beggars and the common good was not looked after. What do we do with the fact that much of the expansion of Christianity throughout the world was carried on the back of this sort of expansionist
2: liberal project. Yeah, that's a gigantic can of worms. (laughs) That's a huge problem. I mean, what? it's actually a problem that I think the 20th century church is sort of groping after solving. I think the reforms that are haven't yet come to fruition, but will coming out of Vatican II are maybe aimed at that sort of a problem. But what happens to Christianity, I think what happens to Christianity in the modern period, and when I say Christianity, you have to understand, I mean it as a cultural phenomenon or as a um, institutional phenomenon and not asserting that there aren't actually individually faithful Christians, there's millions of them, but is that it becomes becomes integrated into the modern regimes, right? And becomes aspects, large parts aspects of their ideological structure rather than... So it becomes perverted in the sense of of becoming in the service of power that isn't fundamentally Christian. So I think this happens. You can see this very, very clearly in the early modern period with the confessional states and the Bill building of what we think of as apparatuses of social discipline, where it becomes clear that Christianity is primarily useful as a form of social control, rather as the salvation of human beings from, from oppression. <laughs> right? Okay. So So that becomes exported. Now, Also, true Christianity is being exported as well, right? So, you know, you got to be careful with that. I think the Franciscan friars out there serving the Indians were doing the real thing. Yeah. I think.
1: Actually, this (laughs) is is played out most obviously in the mission, the movie with, you know, Robert De Niro. Yeah, and, and
2: then that's a good example where you have, like, the true priests, the Jesuits there who are actually missionaries, and then you have the Christianity as aspect of regime butting up against that, right? So I
1: realize when I read your work, I get the same sort of feeling in my stomach I got when I read Stanley Hauerwas in college. How would you respond to that sort of comparison?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think there's a similarity. One of the things that that I have come to understand is that if Christianity is true, <laughs> that there's this sort of leap of, it's not a leap of faith, it's a, we have to be willing to, to suffer. You have to be willing to lose. You have to be willing to be the one who's martyred. <laughs> you have to be willing, because love, the, the order that flows out of love, Um, which is real, which is the most profound kind of order, is the order that flows out of human beings that are giving themselves to others, which means making themselves vulnerable to others. So if you read Locke, you read Hobbes, you read these guys, it's all about, it's all oriented to the opposite. It's all about avoiding vulnerability. It's all about protecting yourself, maximizing your security, maximizing your your, uh, prosperity. And Christianity says, no, the opposite. You know, you make yourself vulnerable to the other. You love the other and give to the other. Well, that is martyrdom, already. I mean, what I mean is that there's already a, even if it never comes to the point that you are being executed, God willing, that'll never happen. There's already a sort of self-martyrdom in play. It already bears the form of martyrdom, right? That order already bears that form because it's already self-sacrificing. And that order then is patient and seeks not to dominate, but to give, care, show, live, right? Like live orders of peace that then convert the world. And I think this brings us back actually, to for example the Roman Empire, you can see this sort of thing there where the it's often remarked that the martyrs, you know, the martyrdom converts the empire. And that's and that's like half true, right? Because when the empire, when the pagans see the martyrs, they're seeing simultaneously the communities of love and peace that those martyrs are coming out of. And those are two aspects of the same thing, right? So they're saying, oh, there's an alternative to our world of domination and violence and fear. And that alternative is this society of peace. And you can see that society of peace you You can see that it's premised upon it only works because those people are willing to go all the way. Okay. And and that's the reason why it works. Like the fear of death has to be overcome, which is why the resurrection has the radical political implications it has. Because once the fear of death is overcome, the whole game changes. But then the You no longer changes. have to
1: be concerned about the sovereignty of the state any longer. And there's... It's uh, just one concern
2: among others, right? It no longer becomes the overarching concern and no longer becomes the concern that dominates you. It becomes just one concern among others. And an aspect of that then... So where I don't want to go is to some sort of pacifism, because that's the the temptation is some sort of like Anabaptist style, you know, just a, a sign of contradiction to the world, which is actually a respectable uh, tradition. Okay, like, like of all the Christian traditions, it's, it's one that I have a deep respect for. But I think it's mistaken because what happens in, in a true Christian society is that society of peace and of love of self-sacrifice includes within it the obligation to use the power that that society can bring to bear for the good of the other. And that includes in things that that make us cringe a little, like discipline, like uh, law enforcement, like even war fighting, right? But all of those things would have to be in order for them to be authentic, in order for them to actually be furthering this kingdom of peace, have to always be oriented towards the good of the weak, rather than the accumulation of power. Now, and so I think that we, I think we can see this very clearly and say like um, healthy parents with their children, that you have an orientation of total gift to your children, but your power that you have over them, it would be a, an abdication of that gift for you to pretend like you don't have more power than. To pretend like you don't have to use it for their own good, including sometimes doing things they don't want, right? So that's where I think that we don't we don't want to verge into a sort of pacifist re- resignation to whatever happens to us, sort of a thing.
1: So this is good. this actually leads into the this what I see is your sort of final critique. Well, there's much more, but the final critique that I want to talk about is this idea of sovereignty of the state in contemporary liberal democracy, the state is the only sovereign, is the locus of all authority and all uh, legitimate uses of force, particularly all legitimate uses of violence, sit in the state. So the question is, is the liberal state inherently tyrannical? And thats I think that's the question of the conference that's coming up at the New Polity Conference at Steubenville, is the contemporary liberal democratic state tyrannical? Yes. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think i think from a technical... I mean, so I don't have to go to the conference anymore, I just got the answer <laughs> to the question. Yeah, I mean, it's not quite that easy. So the class- Classic definition of tyranny. Liberalism is a complicated tyranny because the classic definition of tyranny is rule for private gain rather than rule for the one over whom rules being um, wielded. Okay, so so like Saint Thomas describes these two things very clearly, where he talks about this the human mastery. Human mastery over other human beings is a given. There's no getting out of it. But there's two particular forms. There's one that is sort of exemplified in the father son relationship, where the mastery of, of one man over another is for the good of the other. Right, and that's that kind of giving, self giving um, form of mastery. And then there's another form, which is exemplified in the master-slave relationship, which is where the master uses the other as an instrument of his own gain. Okay. So, and so it doesn't care about his own good in and of itself. But when you look at liberalism, one of the things that's, that's odd about liberalism is that that tyranny is not simply something that the state wields <laughs> because what the regime is, what it attempts to do is maximize tyranny. What I mean, it's like it, it wants to make everybody a tyrant, <laughs> right? So everybody encounters everyone else seeking to maximize their gain right? And not thinking of what power they have to wield, what power they have to wield as something that is for the other. Rather, it's for themselves. Think about the way we think about our money, the way we think about our investments, the way we think about, right? Like this is for us. Well, that's a tyrannical form, Okay, right? That's a tyrannical move from the very beginning. Okay. So now I think it becomes more directly tyrannical in a sort of more traditional sense, because in order over time, liberalism does, because in order to maximize individual desire fulfillment, and this is this is, so in order to maximize, is the ability of individuals to be tyrants. What has to happen over time is the construction of ever more complex and ever more extensive systems of public goods. So, and that terminology may be opaque, but what I just mean is structures that lay out sort of smooth, smooth pathways of desire fulfillment if you desire the right thing. Okay. So if you desire money, then it's really easy, right? Like the whole structure of society is built to facilitate the pursuit of that desire. If you desire sexual gratification it's built to facilitate that desire if you desire you know whatever healthy lifestyle running or yoga or something it's built to satisfy that desire okay so what i'm getting at here is that that original lockean compromise where society was built as a compromise to help facilitate our desire fulfillment they keep liberalism keeps adding layers to that compromise okay keeps adding layers and layers until what ends up happening in the end is the result seems to be something like the maximal ability to satisfy individual desire is achieved when the thing desired, the end, is completely homogenous, meaning everybody desires the same thing. And so we've been able to build a vast structure that enables our desire, our fulfillment of that desire. Now, that becomes tyrannical in the sense of like totalitarian, okay? (laughs) Because then, because then to deviate from that, so if you're in it, you feel free, right? You feel there's nothing thing you can't do. You can roam from city to city as as an atomized, you know, an atomized individual actor fulfilling your desires. But if you want something, an end other than those ends, then you encounter friction, you encounter resistance, you encounter, and eventually you'll encounter the wrath of the regime against you because you're a threat to it. So then in that
1: way, the liberal project serves the what we call the laptop class, the Absolutely, ability to right. sort of be unfettered from everything and to maximize financial gain in, in, in those sorts
2: of things. Well, I think that's what it was from the beginning. I mean, from the very beginning, the liberal move was middle class or the sort of burgeoning bourgeoisie move against the aristocracy and the, and the monarchies, right? But it was a move. Of and this is this is like in their own mythology, right? There, it's a move towards um, freedom against against oppression, and, and it's like, well, yeah, sort of, right? Like it's a move towards taking control of the state and using it to facilitate to build structures that facilitate the things you desire rather than the things that other people desire, and so it becomes liberating to that class while being increasingly tyrannical to the others. So
1: you know, you've in a lot of your work, you really highlighted the Kingdom of Louis the Ninth as an example. Of a polity that doesn't fall prey to some of these failures of liberalism. So, what can we learn
2: from King Louis the, the ninth? Okay, so. When we think of monarchies, when we think of monarchies as liberals like we are, okay, whether we like it or not, <laughs> we always have the image of you know King George the <laughs> Third, or we have or Louis XIV, if we know a little bit more about history. But the point is, we always have this image of a sort of um, absolutist, tyrannical monarchy, who, who monarch whose will is law and his throne is the throne of God, and all this kind of stuff that you get near the modern period. And we want to then project that back as sort of what monarchy is. But in the Middle Ages, that's not the case at all. Okay, so if we define that. That early modern monarchy, I think that what we see is that they're primarily legislators. So what I mean is that the monarch is the source of order for society. Louis the IX is primarily a judge. So the way the way that the the medieval monarchs operate is that they understand that peace is the natural condition of Christian society. Okay? So peace, so the population over which he rules is a population that is mostly living in peace, right? Like most of its interactions are the interactions of friends, comrades, villagers, families, tradesmen who are making peaceful trades with each other. Most of that is peace. And that doesn't need to be structured or governed by positive by any sort of positive law, right? That is peaceful. So what ha- happens then, and and it is governed by law, it's just not governed by centralized positive law because what it is governed by is the peace itself, so the form of the peace. So the people live the way they live peacefully. This is like what you're talking about with the the pre-modern societies, right? That there's a way in which they're interacting with each other that is formal in a certain sense, right? Like there are ways that they do things. Custom, we sometimes refer to this, right? There's a customary order and it's a peaceful order. So when something goes wrong, when there's violence, when there's a conflict, when there's scarcity. scarcity appears. Then that's where the medieval monarch, someone like Louis IX, understands his role. So his role then, and the role of royal justice or centralized justice, is to go into these places of conflict to explore and investigate what the peace had been. So what the law was. They don't know what the law is, right? What the law had been, what the law is, and then who broke it, and then how to rectify it. Because the fact that there's violence means that someone has broken the law because the condition of society is peace, right? So violence is the exception or the tear. So you you enter into it as a judge. And part of that judgment is actually figuring out what the law is. So there's no centralized code. There's no understanding of this all being pulled in to some centralized sort of juridical or planning structure. It's sort of like, well, I mean, in modern Catholic social thought, we're talking about the principle of subsidiarity, where you have the idea that higher authorities enter into the realm of lower authorities when something has gone wrong at the level of lower authorities, right? So the lower authorities aren't bearing a commission from the highest. Right. And so this is the opposite of sovereignty. Right. So the notion of sovereignty is, is that power descends from, from some centralized node. Right. And, and it, it's sort of commissioned and handed down. And so in, in that sort of a notion, then there is authority at lower levels because the centralized power has somehow awarded it to them or at least tolerates it but doesn't have to and so when that lower authority does something wrong th- that isn't in keeping with the higher authority the higher authority intervenes and re- that's a sort of sovereign notion here in 13th century France it's the opposite and so the king very very often very often I mean I would say in his court rulings so I, I i mean I spent years reading all all of the court rulings for about 50 years he rules against himself more often than he does against I mean more often than he does anyone else like he will enter into a in a disagreement and go, oh, look, we, my officers disrupted the peace by doing this or that. And that was uh, unjust of them. Right. So there's this idea that justice is somehow bubbling up from beneath, right? Or, or another way, maybe it would be putting it, a better way of putting it would be that justice in the universal comes from above. It's transcendent and it's manifested in the particular, in the particular lives of people, right? They live justice in certain ways. And that, that justice is always a sort of analog of that universal justice. And then the political powers are sort of suspended in the middle. Right. So they're they're sort of suspended where they, they have to judge the particular in light of the universal, right? When the particular has when something has gone wrong with the particular
1: I'm wondering about the limits of the connection between thirteenth century France and the contemporary age, wherein our lives are not born around kinship relationships and sort of the local guild, and the vast majority of people we interact with on a day-to-day basis really are strangers. So does that sort of political arrangement, can it be replicated at all within the sort of impersonal
2: age in which we, we live? There's a quote I really like from Hayek, and I like it because it's so, so wicked, who said, <laughs> and, he says, and he says something to the effect of, unless we want to destroy this amazingly complex and prosperous society. We have to either submit to the irrational and impersonal forces of the market or submit to the irrational, impersonal and arbitrary rule of men. Okay. So he presents us with this option, but he has an option in there, right? Which is like, if we want to keep this society of, of phenomenal complexity, <laughs> right? Okay. So my point is the desire to have your cake and eat it too is probably um, mistaken, right? Like it's probably not possible to both have an immensely powerful centralization of political and economic resources and have a non-tyrannical personal society, right? <laughs> Those things, like probably the cost of having the first is the second, right? Okay? Uh, is the elimination of the second. And so now what it sounds much worse than it is. But one of the one of the things we have to realize, one of the insights, I think, that the post-liberalism can provide is that liberalism is mistaken in its anthropology, which means that we don't actually live in a liberal regime. That's impossible. <laughs> okay. We live in something, we call it liberal because what we mean is the way liberalism plays out historically, but what the liberals think is going on isn't really what's going on. All right. So let me try to explain what I mean. Look at something like the typical free marketeer argument for the way the economy works, that everybody goes out there and competes with each other, trying to maximize their gain and negotiations with each other over resources and trying to maximize their returns. Okay. Blah, blah, blah. blah. Okay. got it. But what's actually motivating people, right? So very few people are actually pursuing profit for profit's sake, right? The vast majority say the typical parent who leaves his house every day and goes to work nine to five at some job, he's not pursuing profit for profit. sake. So he's working for his children. He's working for his wife. He's working like the liberal economists are wrong, right? They're not motivated by profit. They're motivated by love. Right. <laughs> okay. So, so, and profitism has, the structure has been built in such a way that the most efficacious way of pursuing the love of the other, the most, like, the most sort of fruitful way is in pursuing profit out in this other realm. Right. But that's not the reason you're doing it. So my point is that, is that the non liberal world is already here. Right. Like we live in it. In fact, in fact, it's the thing we actually care about. <laughs> Okay. So like, you know, our families are the things we actually care about. The friends are the things we actually care about. And it's only really the person who's, who's descended to a really, really sad level of viciousness that uh, the prophet actually becomes the thing he's after, right? Or the, the pleasure or whatever. And so my point is there are already places that we can build. And so the first move is just to reorient yourself to those spaces, right? To just to those spaces, just like, no, my real life is with my friends and family. My real life... Life is here with this community. My real life is at my parish. My real life, right? Once you do that, you've. I think that's the most decisive move.
1: (laughs) So, how we push a little further on this because this is actually my next question is what kind of things would have to change and on what scale to get to sort of a post-liberal moment in a meaningful way? We're talking revolution, a climate apocalypse, nuclear war, a reorientation of the mind, a revival of the church, second coming of Jesus. What would it take?
2: <laughs> All the above. Any one of those seem viable. Um, no, I Well, think- actually, the demographic apocalypse, I think, is the bigger one that's actually hanging over us. Quite. Uh, yeah, no, I, I, think that, I think that that's you know, we've seen this before. Okay. So sort of, so the Roman empire was converted, right. And the Roman empire was, was an immensely powerful regime, right. Immensely powerful, and the Romans converted. So we often have this sort of narrative in our minds, I think that Christianity somehow invades or sort of this, from Gibbon, this idea that Christianity is sort of this foreign entity that comes in and, and, and destroys this Roman civilization or something, right? But the real narrative, the real narrative that occurs is that the Romans themselves, Christian, Christianity is a Roman phenomenon, right? And the Romans choose Christianity and convert to Christianity and they convert away from their power, their wealth, their structure of in to something that ultimately undoes them. I mean, ultimately, the empire decentralizes, ultimately, the empire crumbles. And and I think, and, and, and that, that happened, they did that to themselves. So my point is, conversion of a very strong, essentially pagan regime to Christianity is not some ridiculous pipe dream. It's actually kind of like what Christianity is for. <laughs> right? Like, it's like, it's what Christianity And I think that, um, now there's going, I, I think that, you know, this is all speculation, of course, but I I think that, um, before that occurs, I mean, I think it's already gaining ground. You can feel it. So I think a lot of post-liberal movement stuff, you can feel it in the air. There's already, there's already some, some movement towards a return to an authentic Christianity is occurring, but I think society is going to have to get closer to rock bottom before that occurs. Right. And so it's, things, things will get worse before they get better. So
1: one thing that when when I talk with people, I was actually talking with a friend of mine that was that I was doing this interview with you, and I, I think he met you once in Steubenville. And his question was: is to a certain extent, is the way you're thinking out of step with folks like Mary Tan, John Paul II, the documents of Vatican II that seems to make peace with liberalism? And again, I know this is another huge question, but I'm I'm interested in your response. I, Are you out of step with, again, the piece that Vatican II seemed to make with the liberal
2: project? In some ways. In some ways, I think that's fair but i think not in essentials so i think that the church's the church's teaching in time is always bound in its to- in its historical context the church is always preaching to the world that, that it encounters so you know what i'm saying is also out of step with somewhat out of step with the encyclicals of the 19th century and somewhat out of step with with uh, unam sanctum in the 14th century And so you know i i okay, guess so there's a certain there's a certain historical contingency to the church's preaching and as history moves on even if even if this essentials are being brought forward, there's, there can be a a distinction. So now this particular problem is one that much less so John Paul II. So I actually think I'm very much, there's very little that I feel tension with John Paul II. Now, if we go, if we go to documents, you know, Gotti et Spes or some documents of Vatican II, there's definitely more tension, more tension there. And I think the reason why is, I think, I think it really has to do with the historical moment. I think that, um, post-war, the post-war West, created a illusion that many people fell for, which was that a regime of justice, a regime that's basically oriented towards the natural law can exist outside of Christianity. The reason why they thought that was actually because of Christianity. I mean, basically what occurs, I think, in, in, in the surrounding the war is that the United States, I mean, that what we saw in Europe leading up to the war is what a post-Christian, a truly post-Christian society looks like. Okay. <laughs> okay. So the truly post-Christian society is something like what we're seeing in Germany, Italy, Russia. Okay, so the United States intervenes and does so in England, along with them, really with a similar sort of posture, along with this sort of reassertion of Christianity, right? This sort of reassertion of the values of Christianity. We are decent, we are moral, we are hardworking, we are freedom loving, we are God fearing, we are, we are these, these people against these evil post-Christians, right? And I think, and I don't think this is, I'm not trying to say it's cynical, right? I really think that people who fought that war and they rose into that sort of, you know, mental world. (laughs) And so you get phenomenons like the explosion of, of church attendance. I mean, like people don't know this, right? Because we had this idea that we were like really religious in the middle ages, and then this has been the steady decline, but that's just not true, right? Like I think in the United States in the 1920s, only something like 30% of the population went to church. By 1960, something like 70% of Catholics are going to church every Sunday, right? And that, and then, but then immediately, right? Like the next generation, it just falls off the cliff. And so it really is this moment that surrounds the war and that generation. And that happens to be the moment when these documents of Vatican II and this sort of stuff is produced. And I think, and I think then that that's where we get that kind of naive, what feels like naive optimism, right? In there is like, there's some basis to it.
1: (laughs) I do want to turn our conversation to this question of post-liberalism. Again, I, I said at the beginning, liberalism, the term does a lot of work. Post-liberalism as a term does a lot of work. Depending on who's writing about post-liberalism, Trump, Brexit, the rise of populist nationalism, that's post-liberalism. Some folks are looking at Adrian Vermeule and saying integralism, that's post-liberalism. Some are saying it's Adrian Paps and John Milbank's sort of Christian social democracy, that's post-liberalism. So I wanna do a little bit of, um, maybe taxonomy is not the right word, but maybe that's what we're gonna do. Just talk a little bit about this phenomenon that we call post-liberalism. So I'm gonna give you a definition that I use in my class. I want your reaction to it. So here's what I say. So post-liberalism is any contemporary political movement that ventures to look beyond the basic axioms of liberalism to promote a political order that prioritizes some conception of the good over rights.
2: Yeah. That that feels good. That feels like that captures a lot of what's going on. Yeah. No, that feels like something that everybody who claims to be post-liberal could sign off on. <laughs> right, exactly. Okay. Yeah. Even though we would look at each other and go, but you don't really think that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> or, or what, when you say good, what do you mean by good? It's like, or your philosophy obviously doesn't work, but they, I think everyone would at least say, yeah, that's what I think.
1: <laughs> okay. So with that being yeah. said, I want I want to explore a couple of these sort of post-liberal movements and get a sense of where they go wrong or where they're, where they're limited. So you know, one critique that I've had of a lot of post-liberalism is that it's not clear exactly what the positive project is. There's a lot of critique of liberalism, but then it kind of gets a little thin in terms of recommendations about the structure of s- civil and political life in the sort of postmodern age we live. Now, one person who's tried to put some meat on those bones is Adrian Paps. He wrote a book called, I believe it's called Post-Liberal Politics. And he tries to get really specific. And frankly, it sounds to me like Christian social democracy, which is fine for what it's worth. So, is post liberal politics, in its most practical terms, basically right on culture, left on politics? And I will note that PAPS specifically says, the Post-Liberal Project is not right on culture, left on
2: economics. But then when you read it, you're like, oh, what's his, what well, he's actually, actually describing is right actually on culture, there's... left on economics. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I mean, here's what I think that's interesting about post-liberalism, if it's at least my version of post-liberalism, is that one of the things that it emphasizes is that politics is a contingent realm of prudential judgments that are based upon the pursuit of the common good. And also that because human beings are social in their nature, that groupings of human beings bring on or or develop a a character, or we call it a culture, but a personality, like they are certain ways. And the way in which then their virtues can be instantiated or manifested are different. So like the church has historically throughout its documents, much to the chagrin of of partisans everywhere, says things like, you know, there's no particular political form that we're endorsing here. We have no particular political philosophy. We have no... and, And that sounds like a Cop out, but no. What the, what what it's actually doing is pointing to their understanding of what politics is, which is a contingent prudential set of contingent prudential judgments. Okay, so my point is that it may very well be the case that that the English that a just post liberal society would resemble social democracy, you know, some sort of socialist democracy over there, whereas that may not be the way in which we we do it because we're different. Right? You know, we're we're different people, or it may not be the way in which a post liberal society would manifest itself in Africa or China, or whatever. Okay, so... With that being said, so that that which is so it's, that makes it very different than contemporary most contemporary political philosophies, which really are ideologies, right? Who that have a particular form in mind, right? So they have a like most partisans of, of a, any sort of particular philosophy have a form of government. Really, are arguments over constitution, right? And that would be, I think, a truly post liberal position is not a constitutional. It's not arguments over constitutions, right? So it's arguments over the concept of justice and over peace and things like that. Okay, so I think we have. Have a, a wide range. Now within that though that doesn't mean people aren't making mistakes, right? And I'm sympathetic to the to Pabst and Millbank and those guys over there because I think their theology is very is pretty much right on point on most things. <laughs> okay, so I think they are getting the right even though I, I I would I find their politics to be foreign to me. and not something I'm interested in. Now if we move domestically to the United States, I think that there's a lot that's going under the name of post liberal right now. <sighs> which isn't really post-liberal, which is really authoritarian. So it's really illiberal. And it's really ultimately, I think, indistinguishable from liberalism in its final phase. Oh, interesting. So, so it, tell me a little bit <laughs> more about that.
1: So you're distinguishing post-liberal and illiberal. I make the same distinction,
2: but I'm interested to hear how you're distinguishing those two things. So there's no like essential content here other than just we need words for things, right? So like illiberal meaning within liberalism from the very beginning, there is liberalism's opponent, okay? So liberalism, liberalism is structured from the beginning as a sort of continuous revolution, right? Or a continuous conquest of tyranny and replacement with freedom. And so it has built into itself this sort of reactionary tyrannical foot dragger, right? Okay. That's like, like liberalism can't understand itself without that entity, without that person. Okay. And so what I think that's like the illiberal force, liberal, illiberal together. Okay. they're, and they're, and they're bound up together in this historical movement. And I think that a lot of what passes for post-liberal now is people who've just doubled down on that illiberal side of things. And so this is, this is one of the reasons why I think that there's certain brands of illiberalism that are very easy to market, like that they get a lot of attention. A lot of people are interested and attracted by. Same reason why a lot of like the the sort of liberal mainstream media will write about certain forms of illiberalism a lot. And it's because they understand it, right? In a lot of ways, they've never stopped writing about it, right? Like they've been talking about these illiberals since the 17th century, (laughs) right? And it's like, and now we're just talking about them again. And it's this sort of, you know, they'll use the word fascist, but it's this sort of like, you know, authoritarian, top down kind of like, we'll force you to be good and happy type of a thing, you know? So I don't think that is, I don't think that's breaking out of the liberal tradition. I think it is an aspect of it. For example, and a way of seeing that, seeing this. Another example would be something like if you look at something like the alt right. Okay, and the alt right seems to be—I don't know if they're really still around anymore—but the alt right, whatever, they seem to be arguing against identity politics, stuff like that. But when you look at them, what they're actually doing is it, is accepting the identity politics from top to bottom. And just switching sides, right? They just want the white guys to win, right? And so, and you have the same sort of thing on the on certain brands of post liberalism, where they they seem to be opposing liberalism, but really they're not. Really, they just want to win, <laughs> right?
1: Right? Right? They want to use liberalism for their own ends, as opposed right. to and, the and, ends that they yeah.
2: And that is what that is. I think is maybe liberalism coming into its own. What I mean is liberalism, like becoming aware of its own Hobbesian reality, right? That like the delusions are over. This is no longer ideological. Liberalism. Now it's about it's about centralizing power and maximizing gains, and now the, the fight is on. Right. So if you look at you brought up, you know, you brought up Vermeule and those guys. And I hesitate. You know how among academics, internal fights can get kind of vicious and disproportionate, right? Like you're fighting with each other viciously and then you encounter someone who's an outsider and you're like, oh, actually that guy's my friend. Right?
0: <laughs> <Sorry>.
2: yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Okay. So criticisms of, of these guys are always always have to be sort of understood that, that we have we share opponents. Okay, but you know, if you read his new book, Common Good Constitutionalism, Vermule's. And the end vision seems to be something like A vastly empowered White House that is free to make judgments on its own sort of will of what's good that rules through a greatly expanded and deep state. He calls it administrative state, but the the right wing calls it a deep state. So let's use it. Right. Okay. And that is itself empowered to enforce the law selectively based on its perception of the common good. And so my question would be, well, how is that not what we have? Right. Like what you sounds like what you're doing is describing our current regime. And then saying, and we should be in charge of it. I mean, that that feels like what's going on there. Yeah.
1: You know, to me. Well, so I read an article <laughs> by Vermeule in The Atlantic, and he was speaking this way. And then he started talking about subsidiarity, and I said, "I'm not sure I understand what you mean by when you use that word subsidiarity." After you spent the first half of the article talking about using the power structure of the administrative state to impose this particular well, and budget.
2: this he he has a section in the book on subsidiarity, and this and he reveals what he means by it, and it, it's the section that was most troubling to me because what he, he basically turns it completely on its head. So what happens is he is he talks about the smaller entities in society as being the subsidiaries of the the state in the same sort of way that a company has subsidiaries. Oh, interesting. So it's exactly so, backwards. It's exactly backwards. So <laughs> yep. the, So the regime has a conception of the common good. All subsidiaries must be working towards the common good, meaning working as a commission from the state when they deviate, the state now has the authority to intervene because they were working for the state all along. Now, so he says, so he emphasizes that idea of the authority to intervene as opposed to the independence of that which is lower, right? That just sort of vanishes. So what happens then is that the independence of what is lower becomes like good policy. It's not philosophical. It's not a philosophical principle. It, it's something that a, like a, a wise sovereign ruler would allow because it works well. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah.
1: So I want to say with this question of Adrian Vermeule for one more second. Again, I don't want to draw you too much into this back and forth, but I think this is really instructive to understand you better and to understand your interests. When I was prepping this interview, I was talking with some friends that I was going to do this interview and I mentioned New Poly, and they said, oh, that, that Integralist journal. I was like, oh, that's really interesting. And, and then you know, as I read your work, I don't know if this is, you've consciously done this or it's just the way that you speak. I've, I don't think you've ever used the term Integralist. I mean, you, you refer to integralism, but you've never used it for, your, for yourself. So very directly, are you an integralist? Why or why not? This is your
2: opportunity to clarify New Polity's position. My canned response to that is that my problem with the integralists is that they're not integralists enough. <laughs> okay so my problem is that they're not i mean what i think is that is that grace that the spiritual power what christianity brings what christianity is is something that that permeates and penetrates every aspect of humanity and, and through humanity all, every aspect of the cosmos okay so i have a very 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 expansive understanding of ecclesiology and and what's going on here and so all politics because politics are about human flourishing that politics are an aspect of the church and i I don't mean that the church, meaning the clerical hierarchy, somehow trumps politics or runs politics. Or, and that's a lot of the integralists. Again, they're often more sophisticated than this. But when it's simplified to be explained, what it boils down to is some sort of natural supernatural divide where you have this natural realm, which is politics, and then you have the supernatural, which is the church, and the church trumps politics because the natural is ordered to the supernatural or something like that. And my approach would be something more like, no, the relationship between the supernatural and the natural is like the body and the soul. The relationship between the temporal power and the spiritual power is as the body is to the soul, which means that the spiritual power is present in and animates the temporal power at every move. There is no temporal realm that's not also the spiritual realm. (laughs) Okay. So that, that then means that the, the sort of integralist, what we normally think of as integralist, the regimes they imagine don't work for me. I don't understand them and I don't, it doesn't satisfy what I'm after here. I'm after, that's the reason why I can talk about peace as being, as coming up from the bottom as well as from the top, right? Because I'm imagining grace, revelation, order as operating up and down the whole social hierarchy and not simply sort of descending from above. And so again, they're not integralist enough. <laughs> so, so that's why I, I don't. And I, you know why I also don't use the word all honestly is because one of my great theological philosophical influences are the Communio school. So people like De Delebock, Ratzinger, von Balthasar, and they their opponent were called the Integralists. Okay, so they were arguing against the integralists in the early twentieth century France, in particular, and Integralism there had this sort of quasi-fascist, you know, culminating in the Vichy regime type of flavor to it. And and the current integralist resurrected that word, I think, on purpose. Okay, so I don't like it because I think it was purposefully a sort of rehashing a fight from the 1930s. You know?
1: <laughs> so I want to return to the, uh, this question of how, what it would look like for the soul of the church to animate the body of the state. But I want to sort of sit here with this idea of these competing post-liberal visions. So one concern that I have over a post-liberal political future, is that you know, the integralists are not the only game in town in terms of thinking about how to orient society towards some particular conception of the good that would might emerge after liberalism. So you know, it's possible that when li- liberalism fails, it becomes a dogfight between you know, folks like Adrian Vermeule and then different forms of post-liberal order. I think particularly of authors like Bruno Massius and Jeffrey Ramo who argue that a fundamentally new political order is emerging that's different from Western liberal democracy, one that's based on networks, data mining, smart social control, all oriented to economic and social efficiencies. And these movements are very not so interested in civil rights and the good as we'd conceive of it. You know, I think of China as the central player in geopolitics that is sort of oriented in this way, but it also happens that this is also the vision of techno-utopians in Silicon Valley. So that's all background for this question. It seems to me that the impulses are the same is to harness the administrative state for this sort of sense of the good with with no sort of orientation to civil rights in some ways, would modern democratic liberalism not be a better alternative for Christianity than techno-utopianism yes in, in, in the terrible <laughs> in a terrible situation where Vermeil doesn't win right whereas where Mark Zuckerberg wins,
2: so that's my question. I'll take the libertarians any day <laughs> right. over, the, over the Chinese, yeah. <laughs> Right, over the Chinese Communist Party. So you brought up the Chinese system and that's that's really great because I think that... I, I don't think it's a coincidence that a lot of people on the sort of integralist side of things, as well as like the woke or whatever, I don't know how to call them, you know what I mean? Like, like the hardcore progressive types. Now, either of them seem very interested in criticizing China. <laughs> In fact, in fact, every once in a while, they kind of like sneak out these these admiration, this admiration for China, for the Chinese system. And again, I think what we're seeing there, what I what I would point out there is that what you're seeing is is an agreement and a really agreement on political form. Right. And then a disagreement um, over ends. Right. But the problem, the problem that which I think works just fine for like the woke, because I think that what they desire can probably be built through that kind of thing, sort of until it ultimately falls. But I think that the integralists are mistaken because the regimes of centralized technocratic power. I believe, only work to this extent that they work, to the extent that the populations have been atomized and isolated from each other and bound into large structures and systems that they are dependent upon and which they then then serve. And so the idea of capturing those things and then turning them towards building societies of virtue is a contradiction. I mean, it's like they they depend upon the sort of moral wasteland that has been built in order for their power. It doesn't work otherwise. That's what I would argue. So maybe it makes sense to try to seize control as a tactic to then dismantle. But, you know, the idea that you're going to, I mean, think of the incentives, the way in which the incentive structures of vast bureaucratic and economic structures work, like of people who climb to the top and why they climb to the top. And the idea that you're going to convert that to the pursuit of Catholic common good and have it be efficacious, have it work, have those vast administrative and bureaucratic apparatuses and corporations work—that just seems um, uh, foolhardy.
1: So here's the last question. I'm, I'm going to ask you to put some uh, put some meat on the bones, right? You know, we we did a lot of critique. I'd like to just take a few minutes to think about. What would that political form look like functionally and practically to have the
2: body animated by the soul in our political life? What form would that take? I think it would take the form that the church calls subsidiarity, So I think that what we would see would be very local structures of solidarity, so starting with the family, building out into the community, the parish, the town, city, right, okay, with those relationships being profoundly personal. So what I mean is this, this is, try to explain it, freedom, human freedom is an end here, and I think it's a very real one. And so anytime, anytime freedom gets sidelined, like it has been recently, it should be a big red flag for us, okay? So human freedom is a priority, and human beings, because we're social in our nature, become Free, not over and against all of our, the fellows in which we live. That's the liberal mistake. We become free in, in the relation, in the relationships, in the communities in which we are bound. Okay. So what I mean is this intimate communities take shape from the people who create. So us as persons are integral to what that community is. Think about the way a family is, right? That's the most obvious one where a new person changes the family, right? Because the family is nothing other than these persons who love each other and know each other. And so the, in a healthy family, the person, the individual person fits in the family. It's where he belongs, right? It's his nature. It's his world. And so his freedom operates in that world, not against it, All right? So if you imagine that that way of thinking and expanding that out into bigger groupings of people where you are free in your family, in your community, in your town, and those larger those larger groupings are more abstract, less personal, and so therefore weaker, <laughs> okay? They govern less in your life and up all the way up to the largest structure which ultimately would be in my view the Roman Catholic church I mean it would be the the church in the largest sense which is all of humanity right that would be the highest order and I think then that that what you're looking at then is the, and the reason why this makes sense from the, the idea of the soul animating the body. I mean, this is a, is that the image I'm trying to paint here is one of, of a hierarchy, right? Of a social hierarchy. And it's sort of an inverted hierarchy in the sense that the, the most powerful thing is the thing at the bottom. Okay. But the thing about the conception of the soul and the body is that if you think of that whole hierarchy as the body of society, society becomes this really complex sort of hierarchical entity that the soul animates it at each. Each rung and each piece. Okay, so it's not like great. And we can see this. Roman Catholicism can see this very. We can see this very clearly when we talk about like the most profound instance of divine action is the Eucharist. And that is the most intimate one, right? That, that is the one that is, that happens at the smallest entity within the church, right? The parish and the individual receiving the Eucharist. And that's the most powerful aspect of grace. So my point would, is that grace, grace and revelation animates each, the ability for human beings to fulfill their vocations and find peace at each rung within the social hierarchy. And so it need not have a descending from above order there need not be some sovereign whether it be a king or the pope okay that's not okay so so there you have the idea of man is social in his nature man is a body the soul animates the body the soul animates the whole complexity of the body not just the top of it right the whole thing and so the and again it's like well if the body is the polity and the the soul is the church and it's like but well, we know just our basic philosophy is that we are a composite we're not. We're not a body that has a soul. We're an soul body. Right? <laughs> so again, it's like there's a distinction between the soul and the body, but they're always and everywhere bound up together. And that that's the vision for the spiritual and temporal powers. One thing that strikes me is you talk very little, and I noticed this in your
1: writing, about actual state and church, right? Like, I, I, you know, I think one thing I'm trying to get you to is say very explicitly, what would it look like for the church to work with the
2: state? And that doesn't seem to be the... I don't want to do The that. level at which it interests you, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, the reason why is actually really easy, and I should probably say it more often, is just that when I think church, I think of three, and this comes from my medieval training, is that for me, the church is three orders. It's the laity, it's the clergy, and it's the religious. And the laity and this just basic politics from the Middle Ages was that they would say in the church, there are two swords, the temporal and the spiritual, the laity wield the spirit, the temporal and the spiritual or the the clergy wield the spiritual, right? There are three laws, they would say the civil law, which is wielded by the laity, the canon law, which is wielded by the clergy and the law of theology, which is wielded by the religious. All right. My point is that for me, it's all the church. <laughs> so I, I don't under, like the laity are the church and the laity, in fact, like what St. Thomas says, he says the reason for the clergy is, is to give the laity the Eucharist and to prepare them to receive it. That's the reason why the priests exist. Okay, so, and the laity's role is what? Is politics, family, right? Like, so the things that we think of as the, as the role of the state is exactly what the laity rule over. It's exactly the vocation of the laity. So again, if we want to talk about the church, if we want to talk about the church as the bishops, which is what lots of people do.
1: Is this also why people have such a hard time understanding what Archbishop Cordelioni did recently? And it can only be interpreted as partisan politics as opposed to the
2: Archbishop, his concern for the soul of Nancy Pelosi. Yeah, that's right. And that, and that Nancy Pelosi, like all of us as laity, have a vocation within the church, not outside the church. That again is the, the liberal, one of the liberal dichotomies is this, is this distinction between religion and, and politics or religion and public life or whatever these distinctions, like there's realms that don't have anything to do with the other. But, but Catholic, the whole conception behind Catholicism is the universality of it, that it, no, this is all bound up together in one thing. And we make distinctions, we, which are good, but the, the distinctions are not absolute. And yeah, so so it's not only her own soul that's at stake, but she's committing an injustice within the church. She has a vocation within the church, so it's like it's like a priest who violates his vows. He also is violating his vocation within the church. While well, the laity are, are just as capable of doing that.
1: So, Andrew, I could talk all day. I th- this is a really fun conversation. Unfortunately, we are way over time, but I'd like to continue this conversation, and we're uh, just a few miles away from each other. So, I'd like—I think it'd be fun to continue this conversation in, in person. But in the meantime, again, I want to thank you for, for coming on the show and having this really robust conversation and um, hopefully Thanks we'll for be me. able to see each other in person. Definitely. Okay. All right. Thanks. Thanks so
0: much. Thanks for listening. If you appreciated this episode, please rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice. We love to hear from listeners. Chat with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can also learn more about our programming at BeatriceInstitute.org. That's BeatriceInstitute, all one word, org. And if you are a university student or a faculty member in Pittsburgh and would like to be involved locally, check out our fellows program and get in touch. This episode was mixed and mastered by Yellow Music and Sound. Until next time, I'm Ryan McDermott. Go with God.